Well, uh, several years ago, I went on a trip to old Quebec. And while I was out exploring the city, I came across a sign saying that there was going to be a free show at the port that evening. And I'm a big fan of things that are free. <laughs> so I really wasn't expecting that much. I mean, I know you tend to get what you pay for with these kinds of things, but I decided that I would check it out. And so I went to this show and I was blown away. Okay, it ended up being an acrobatic show, kind of like Cirque du Soleil. It was kind of the first show I'd seen that was really like that. And it was breathtaking. It was awe-inspiring. It was magical. I was absolutely captivated as the acrobats just soared through the air. And they made it look so easy. Now, have you seen this? They just make it look so easy. They made it look so easy that by the end of the performance, I was sincerely convinced that with just a little bit of practice, I too could soar to these acrobatic heights. And so I decided that when I got home that this was an ambition I would pursue. And so I went home, and shortly after, I decided it was time to get things into motion, right? And so I went to the Flying Squirrel trampoline park in Hamilton. Anyone, have you been there? It's a fun place. Um, and it took me about 30 seconds on one of the trampolines uh, before I realized that I had drastically misjudged my potential as what they call a trampoline artist. I couldn't figure out how to like hit the trampoline in a way that would give me any sort of real height. Even just like the thought of trying to do a flip filled me with a sense of terror. Like I suddenly realized that I prefer my head to be pointing upwards rather than plummeting towards the ground. Anyone else? My movements were awkward and clumsy. There was no grace or finesse to speak of. And by the time I left the flying squirrel that day, all of my hopes and dreams of becoming a professional acrobat had been laid to rest. Have you ever found yourself in one of those situations where you loved the idea of something, but then came to realize that the actual doing of the thing was way more difficult than you'd imagined? For the last couple of months, we've been in a series called Ancient Faith, where we've been looking at some of the spiritual disciplines that help us to stay connected to God and attentive to the ways that he's working within us and around us. And spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices are important because as followers of Jesus, uh, we believe that our faith isn't just about believing the right things, Right? It's about actually living every day in relationship with the God who made us and who loves us. And it's about partnering with God in what he's doing in the world. We believe that God is active and moving all the time all around us and that as followers of Jesus, we're called to be people who join him in that work and who reflect his kingdom in our families, in our workplaces, and in our communities. 
But that doesn't happen by accident. We don't just drift towards faithfulness to God or attentiveness to his presence. Because in our world, we are surrounded by all kinds of distractions and we're pulled in all kinds of different directions. And so it takes intentionality, right? It takes intentionality to step away from all of the noise and the clutter and to focus our hearts and our minds on Christ so that we can sense his presence and so that we can hear his voice. Spiritual practices are the things that we do to recalibrate our hearts to the heart of God. And so far in this series, we've been looking at some of the classic spiritual disciplines. We talked about uh, prayer and meditation. We talked about uh, fasting and mutual uh, submission. And we talked about confession But this morning, we're going to uh, talk about a practice that we don't typically think about as a spiritual discipline. This morning, we're going to talk about working through the conflict and challenges that come up in our relationships with others. Because we all love the idea of unity, right? We all love the idea of being a community that reflects God's love into the world through our love for one another. We all love the idea of living in harmony and having this shared identity in Christ that kind of transcends our differences and holds us together in love. And we know that scripture calls us to unity. John 17 verse 21 Uh, Jesus prays, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6 say, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and living through all. In Philippians 2, verse 2, Paul calls the believers in Philippi to agree wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. We all want to be a community a part of a community, sorry, that lives out this kind of unity, and we know that scripture calls us to this kind of unity, but unity is one of those things that we love the idea of, but that's incredibly difficult to live out in practice, in real life. Because being a part of a community of faith means being in relationship with a group of broken human beings. Amen? And if we're really doing life together, it's only a matter of time before we bump into disagreements or misunderstandings or friction or hurt feelings. And when that happens, we have a choice to make. We can either settle for the status quo And we can be a community that's characterized by the fractures and divisions that are so common in our world. Or 
we can open ourselves up to the work of God's spirit in us and let him lead us towards reconciliation. And so while working through conflict isn't something that we traditionally think about as a spiritual discipline, it is very much spiritual. And it is very much a discipline. And it's one of the most essential practices when it comes to being a community that really lives into the unity that Scripture calls us to. So this morning we're going to look at a short passage of scripture from the book of Philippians that has a lot to teach us when it comes to working through conflict within the body of Christ. And this is one of those passages that's easy to miss, and it's easy to dismiss as relatively significant. It's just a small little passage, but it's a passage that actually gets to the core of one of the key issues that Paul's seeking to address in the book of Philippians. This morning, we're going to look at Philippians 4, verses 2 to 3. But before uh, we turn there, there's just a little bit of context that's really important to know to kind of get a sense of what's going on in the passage. So the book of Philippians isn't actually a book at all. It's a letter, right? It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the first church that he planted in Eastern Europe. And Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell in Rome, where he was bound in chains for proclaiming the gospel. And while he was there in prison, the Philippian church had sent someone from their community with a financial gift just to give Paul some support. And so Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church to express his gratitude and to encourage them in living out their faith. Now, Philippi was a colony of Rome, and it was the home to a lot of retired soldiers. And so this was a community there was a, where there was a really strong sense of nationalism. And the Christians who lived there faced resistance and even persecution for their allegiance to Jesus as the one true king. But the church continued to worship Jesus and live faithfully to him, even in the face of those circumstances. And this is the uh, context that shapes the themes in Paul's letter to the Philippians. One of the themes that uh, Paul comes back to again and again in this letter is the, the idea of citizenship. In 1 verse 27, Paul says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So Paul reminds the Philippians that while they're living in a Roman colony that's full of patriotism, they have a different citizenship. They are citizens of heaven. In a world that's obsessed with power and wealth and status, the Philippians were called to be people who followed in the footsteps of their king, Jesus, who lived in a way that was completely different than any worldly king, who embraced a posture of humility, who lived a life of love, who was willing to lay everything down for the sake of others. 
Paul wants the Philippians to know that if it feels like they're swimming against the current in the culture that they're living in, it's because they're citizens of another kingdom that operates according to a completely different set of values. And he encourages the Philippians to fully embrace and to live into that identity. And there are two more key themes that Paul highlights in the second half of that verse that we just read, 1 verse 27. So Paul says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come to see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting for the faith, which is the good news. And so here, Paul links two themes together. The idea of standing firm, of staying strong in our faith, regardless of what circumstances we might experience, and the idea of living in unity, of standing together in one spirit and one purpose. For Paul, these two ideas actually go hand in hand. We can't stand firm in our faith when we're divided and on our own. We stand firm in our faith when our arms and our hearts are linked together and our feet are anchored in the spirit as we contend for the gospel. And Paul actually uses military imagery here, imagery that would have been very familiar to his listeners uh, but the picture that kept coming to my mind as I was thinking about this was actually a game that we used to play in the schoolyard as kids. And I don't know whether children are even allowed to play this at school anymore. I imagine that at some point they kind of looked at the statistics and they realized that this was the source of 90% of the concussions. It's the game Red Rover. You guys know the game? You remember, right? You remember. So to play Red Rover, we would get into two lines that would uh, stand facing each other on opposite sides of the field. And everyone in each of the lines would uh, stand with their arms linked together as tightly as possible and with their feet anchored firmly on the ground. And the teams would take turns calling over uh, one of the kids from the other side. And then that kid would kind of try to scope out the weakest link and then they would try to barrel through, right, and break open the arms of two of the teammates on the opposite team. So to be successful in this game, you really had to make sure that your feet were firmly planted on the ground and that your arms were holding on tightly, as tightly as you could, to the people next to you. Paul wants the Philippians to understand that in order to stay anchored in their faith, they need to hold on to each other tightly. And they need to keep their feet planted firmly in the spirit. So as he leads up to our passage this morning, Paul comes back to these themes again and again. He calls the believers in Philippi to embody the self-giving love of Christ as citizens of heaven, and to live in unity and to stand firm as they contend for the gospel. 
And we can imagine that as the Philippian church sat together and listened to Paul's letter being read out loud, which is how they would have taken it in, they would have been inspired and captivated by the idea of being this kind of community. This is the kind of community that we all want to be a part of. But in the passage that we're looking at today, things get real. Because Paul takes those big, beautiful ideas about unity and love, and he applies them to a messy, painful, real-life conflict. And we can be sure that for the people involved, those big, beautiful ideas that were giving them warm fuzzies just a few moments ago now felt nearly impossible to actually live out in practice. So let's have a look. Philippians 4, verses 2 to 3. Verse 2 says this. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche. It's a cool name if you're thinking of names for a child. Syntyche. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So, Yodia and Syntyche are leaders in the Philippian church, and there has been a breakdown in their relationship. We don't get any details about the conflict. We can assume that this wasn't a major theological disagreement or an issue of something like misconduct because Paul always gives correction uh, when he's addressing those kinds of situations. This is a fracture that's taken place in a friendship that was most likely rooted in some sort of disagreement about their ministry in Philippi. Now, Paul does something in this passage that he rarely does in his letters. Did you catch it? He identifies these women by name. In our culture, one of the ways that we shame people is by calling them out publicly on like social media, right? And so it's easy for us to get the sense that Paul's identifying these women to single them out. But that's not actually what's going on here. The tone that Paul uses leading up to this passage is actually one of compassion and tenderness. He's just been gushing about his love for the Philippians in the previous verse. This isn't meant to be a harsh rebuke. In this culture, refusing to name an enemy was actually a way of showing them disrespect. So Paul addresses these women by name, as a sign of their friendship. As he writes this letter from his jail cell in Rome, this is as close as he can get to looking these women in the eyes and talking to them personally. And this conflict was having an impact on the entire community as people took sides and built camps And so by addressing it publicly, Paul was giving the rest of the church an opportunity to kind of check their own posture and to do what they could do to move things in the direction of reconciliation. In verse 3, Paul calls on one person in particular to get involved. He says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, 
And again, we don't know exactly who Paul's addressing here, but this is somebody that the community is familiar with and somebody that Paul trusts to enter into the conflict and to help the women sort things out. So he says, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. When there's a conflict, we tend to either mind our own business and just stay out of it or to take a side and to widen the gap of division within our community. But to Paul, neither of those responses will do. This matters too much. Unity matters too much. The gospel matters too much. And so he asks this trusted companion to enter right into the middle of the mess and to help these women find their way through it. After all, Paul says, these are women who have contended for the gospel alongside of him. These are women who know and love Jesus. And so regardless of how impossible reconciliation might feel, what holds them together is deeper and stronger than anything that could possibly be tearing them apart. In these two little verses, Paul addresses this big, messy situation that's full of all kinds of pain and resentment. A friendship has fallen apart. There's division in the church. And as far as Paul's concerns, the gospel is at stake. Because unity isn't just an afterthought. It's central to what it means to be a community of people who find their identity in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but this passage actually brings me a little bit of comfort. (laughs) Because it's easy to look around at all of the division that exists in the church today and to feel like things have gone so far off the rails that they could be beyond repair, right? We tend to have an idealistic picture of how things used to be in the early church. But passages like this one remind us that conflict has always existed in the church. Conflict is an inevitable part of being in community. It's an inevitable part of having a group of humans with different backgrounds and experiences and personalities trying to do life together which is unfortunate, right? Because most of us don't like conflict. Having unresolved conflict in our lives can consume us. It can bring us down. It can make us lose sight of who we are and who we want to be. It can mean losing relationships and people that matter to us. If there was an easy way out of conflict, if there was a button that we could just push that would make it go away, that would make our relationship go back to what it used to be, most of us would push it. But here is something that I've learned to be true from years of buying Assemble It Yourself furniture. 
Some things in life are easier to build than they are to repair. Some things are easier to build than they are to repair. A while ago, I ordered a TV stand online. And when it arrived, I spread all of the pieces out on my floor, and I got it put together. And had I followed the directions carefully, I'm sure that everything would have gone smoothly. But unfortunately, I missed a step. And so when I went to pull the TV towards the center of my wall, I heard a cracking noise and I felt the one side just like collapse at the base. And upon further investigation, I discovered that the particle board had split and broken apart where all of the hardware was. And so when I tried to fix it, I couldn't get things to fit together or to tighten up in the same way anymore. I had to call someone who knows how to use like actual real life tools not just the little Allen key. Some things are easier to build than they are to repair. It's true when it comes to assemble it yourself furniture, and it's true when it comes to our relationships. Building friendships is pretty intuitive, right? But once trust has been broken, once hurtful words have been said, once a betrayal has taken place, things don't seem to fit together the same way anymore. And it can be difficult to imagine how repairing the relationship could even be possible. And so often, we respond by either lashing out at the person who hurt us, whether to their face or just behind their back, right? Or we end the friendship and we go our separate ways. But Paul urges these women to find another way forward, to lean in and to do the deep hard work of reconciliation. And there are four things that Paul does in this passage that can help us to navigate the challenges of interpersonal conflict and even to come out on the other side with a deeper relationship that more fully reflects the grace and the power of the gospel. The first one is this. Paul calls each of the women to own their part of the conflict. To take responsibility and initiative in the ways that they can to repair the friendship. In verse 2, Paul uses the exact same words in his appeal to each of the women. He says, I plead with you, Odia." And I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He doesn't take sides. He doesn't place all of the responsibility on one person's shoulders. Instead, he urges each of these women to think about what they can do to move things towards reconciliation. When we're in a conflict it's easy to find reasons why the other person should be the one to make the first move, right? They started it. It's their fault. They probably don't want to work things out anyways. We can come up with all kinds of reasons to wait and avoid. But when both people are waiting 
and avoiding, and we just get stuck there. Romans 12, 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. We can't control what another person does or how they respond when we reach out, but we can do what we can do to move things towards reconciliation. And there are two questions to ask ourselves when we're taking an honest look at our role in working out a conflict. The first question is, what do I need to take responsibility for? What do I need to take responsibility for? When a relationship breaks down, it's tempting to put all of the blame on the other person. But reconciliation always begins with an honest assessment of the part we played in the conflict. And so we start by asking ourselves and asking God what we need to own and what we need to apologize for. And the second question is, what do I need in order to heal, forgive, and move forward? It's important. What do I need in order to heal, forgive, and move forward. Reconciliation doesn't mean sweeping things under the rug and pretending that everything's okay when they're really not. True reconciliation requires honesty and vulnerability. Sometimes before we can move forward, we need to talk things through with someone. We just need to be heard. Sometimes we need to ask another person for prayer. Sometimes we need a little bit of space and time in solitude. Right? just to let God work in us and heal us. So we own our part of the conflict by taking, our, taking responsibility for our share of what went wrong and taking initiative in asking for what we need from God and from others in order to move forward. The second thing Paul does in this passage is he calls the women to embrace a posture of humility. Paul tells these women to be of the same minds in the Lord. And just a couple of chapters back, Paul described what that looks like using these exact same words. Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our human tendency is to do everything we can to fight for and to hold on to power and status. But Jesus did just the opposite. He had all of the power and the status in the universe, and he laid it down in humility and love. And Paul tells these women that the way forward to reconciliation means doing the same thing. It means laying down our pride, listening well, and setting aside our own agenda for the sake of others and for the sake 
of the gospel. The third thing Paul does is remind the women what story they are a part of. Conflict narrows our field of vision. It becomes the only thing we think about when we think about that other person. But Paul reminds Euodia and Syntyche that as big and consuming as their conflict might feel, it's not what defines their friendship. What defines their friendship is this story of salvation that they've both been invited into. These women have shared history, serving God alongside Paul and their other companions, and they have a shared future. Their names are written in the book of life. They will spend all of eternity in heaven where everything and everyone will be healed and made whole by God's perfect love. And that shared future is one that they're called to embody in the here and the now. The church is called to be a community that reflects heaven here on earth, which means working through the tough stuff and extending forgiveness and finding our way back to unity and love. And lastly, Paul calls on the women to lean on their community, to receive help from someone that they trust. When we're in conflict, we tend to look to others for validation. What if instead we turn to someone we know will help us to keep our eyes on Jesus? And instead of asking them to take our side, if we ask them to help us find a way to, to move towards reconciliation. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the church is like a body. Right? When all of the parts are healthy and working together, all is well. But when there's a fracture or a tear, the entire body needs to rally together its resources to get it healed and mended. Part of being in community means helping each other live into this beautiful vision of unity that we have in Christ. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, that all sounds great, but the conflict that I'm in is way too big and way too messy to resolve. Put up your hand if you thought I was reading your mind. I'm just kidding. A couple of months ago, uh, we looked at a passage from the book of James that I think carries a lot of hope for those situations. It's James 3, verse 18. It says this, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Have you ever planted a seed? Doesn't feel like you're doing very much in the moment, does it? Seeds are small. They seem insignificant. When you take a seed and you toss it in the dirt, it doesn't feel like anything has changed. But eventually, new life starts to break through. And when we're trying to find our way through conflict, what we really want is a solution that's the size of the problem, right? We want to find that thing we can do or that conversation that we can have that will make everything better all at 
once. But that's not always how reconciliation happens. Sometimes reconciliation can only take place over time. As hurts are healed, as trust is rebuilt. We might not have a solution that's the size of the problem. But we can plant the seed of peace that we're able to plant today. We can take that next step that moves us in the direction of reconciliation. We can embrace a new posture. We can send the text message. We can say we're sorry, whatever it might be. And every seed that we sow and every step that we take opens up a little bit more space for God to do what only he can do to bring about his healing and transformation. So this passage from Philippians reminds us that the church is a place where conflict happens, yes. But it's also a place where forgiveness happens. It's also a place where reconciliation happens. It's also a place where God takes broken relationships that seem beyond repair and he brings them back to life. And it's hard to see it in the middle of the mess, but for all of the potential that conflict has to wreak havoc and tear us apart, it also opens up an opportunity for God to work in powerful ways. Conflict can expose our wounds and weaknesses so that we can bring them to Jesus for healing. Conflict can give us clarity about what really matters, about who we want to be. And conflict presents an opportunity to practice the forgiveness and grace that are at the heart of the gospel. So how is God calling you to take one step towards reconciliation in a relationship where there's been conflict or tension? What's the seed of peace that God's inviting you to sow today? Working through conflict isn't easy, right? But we don't have to do it alone. When we step into the vulnerability that comes with mending the tears in a fractured relationship, God's spirit is with us to give us strength and peace to lead us forward. And we are held within a community that shares this commitment to living out the unity that we have in Christ. Reconciliation is the way that those big, beautiful ideas about unity and love and standing firm together get worked out in real life in our midst. And when we're willing to lean in and let God lead us in repairing and renewing our relationships, our communities, our churches will be places where people can experience a little bit of heaven here on earth, God's kingdom here on earth. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up to the front, and we're just going to pray together, and then we're going to take a few moments to reflect. God, we thank you that you are our peace. God, we thank you um, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have peace with you. We've been forgiven. We have grace in you. And that we have reconciliation with each other. 
And God, I pray that, you know, as difficult as this stuff is, when we actually put it into practice in real lives, I pray, God, that you would help us each to just think honestly about what this looks like, about what relationships we might need to move forward um, in seeking reconciliation in. And God, I pray that you would give us wisdom and strength, give us peace and grace as we seek to be people who sow seeds of peace in situations where there's been conflict. God, we thank you for this beautiful vision of a community that's centered in your love, that finds our identity in you, and that lives in unity. We thank you for the power that we know this holds in our broken, divided, polarized world. God, may we live into it. God, renew our sense of belovedness, being loved by you, and uh, just strengthen our love for each other so that we can show the world who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So yeah, before we uh, close in worship, let's just take a, a few moments to think about what this looks like in our own lives, about what relationships we might, might need to uh, seek reconciliation in. So I'm just going to invite you to just take a moment, center yourself in God's presence. Just take a few deep breaths. And just let yourself be reminded that God is here. He was with you all week, the highs and the lows, when you noticed, when you didn't notice. He was here when you walked in the doors this morning, and he's here now, as close as the air that we breathe. And so just as you sit in God's love, I'm just going to invite you to think about a relationship where you've been experiencing conflict or resentments or tension, or things haven't been as they should be. Maybe even just ask the Holy Spirit uh, just to, na- to, sh- to show you the relationship to focus on. So I'm going to leave you with this really simple. Just re- take a moment to reflect on this. What is the seed of peace that God's inviting you to sow in that relationship today? What's the next step that God's inviting you to take in moving that relationship towards healing and reconciliation. And just ask the Holy Spirit uh, to reveal that to you. God, we thank you that you are our peace. You are our strength. You are the one who brings us healing. You are the one who leads us forward. We don't have to do any of this on our own. God, we know that you've got us. And I pray that as you've been speaking to us now in these moments through your spirit, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us courage, and that you would just even give us a sense of hope towards what it is that you want to do in these relationships. God, I pray that you would help us to be people who are agents of reconciliation in our communities, in our friendships, in our families. In your name we pray. Amen.